our loving Lord Jesus. We thank you that you are Lord of all. Because what we've realized is that that truth and that reality, when we accept it, is the road to freedom. It's the road to hope. Because there's a lot of people probably here today, Lord, that are feeling in the storm, and our world is in a storm. But help us to understand that the answer is not letting go of the anchor. The answer is not to forget who has put us here and whose we are. So Lord, I just pray that today as we share together, once again in some difficult issues, that you would speak your love and truth of how your Lordship answers all questions and brings all peace and that it really, really is good news to be free from having to do it all on our own. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being here. And uh, I thank you for this church family that I get to be a part of. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I was singing down there, and I, I was singing, I, I was thinking about the words, but I was thinking also that I really should tell you why I was so familiar with that little boy we just dedicated, uh, in case you didn't know. I mean, Uh, Jordan is on staff, and I haven't had a chance to say how happy I am he's here and how much it helps me personally uh, to have uh, someone else uh, working in pastoral staff. But uh, he uh, is actually sort of related to me, that little guy, uh, Elliot, uh, because his mom is our daughter. So I just want to be clear on that, that you know, yeah, oh dear. Okay, so somebody said he looks like me. That uh, we should not, we should pray that that changes. So, um, but anyway, I want you to just know that uh, that's kind of why it is, and and uh, that's kind of the connection because I, I didn't really say it because I want them to. You can pray for Jordan though. If, imagine having your father-in-law as the head of the church. But uh, you know, it's good. We just I'm so happy he's here. Um, today though, we're going to have our last PG-13 uh, message for a while. I mean, I guess you could say they're all PG-13 because they deal with have big, important issues in our lives. Uh, but that's the last of this series, and we're starting a new series next week. I have to go away again to Chicago. These are board meetings I'm going to. It's not that I'm gallivanting around or, you know, visiting other churches or something like that. I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm going there to do work, okay? So, uh, but Christian Plover is going to start us off in a new series next week that's going to lead us right up to Easter about, uh, you know, what was happening with the disciples before the cross, before it got to that point where Jesus was crucified. I mean, and, and what we learned there is a lot about how do you flourish when you're not sure what the future looks like? And so it's going to be a good, good time to be together and encourage you to be here for that. But today is the last of the Love Thy Body series, and it's, the subject that we're going to deal with is human sexuality. And uh, you can imagine that that is, you know, is a, a broad and wide and, and, and heavy subject because it's just, it's sweeping the cultural landscape and it's incredibly emotionally charged. So I just want to start off by saying what I am going to be talking about, what I'm not going to be talking about, because we can't say everything today. And uh, I just want to uh, clarify that like I did a couple weeks ago and just sort of lay out the land. The first thing I need to say is when we come to this matter or any matter with which we have a, a conflict or a disagreement with the culture at large, we have got to start where we started in this series, and that is with the parable of the Good Samaritan. That we are the new Samaritans, and what Jesus is asking us to be is good ones. <laughs> People who show grace and truth. People who show mercy uh, as well as justice, okay? So not, 
not uh, just uh, all on the true side or all on justice side and so forth and so on. We, we have got to understand that that's what it means to follow Jesus, okay? Second thing I need to say is temptation is not the same thing as sin, of any kind of temptation. Because Hebrews 4.15, just for one verse, says that Jesus was tempted in every single way that you and I are tempted, and yet he did not sin. So it must be possible to be tempted but not sin, Okay? So let's just clarify that. Third thing that we need to say is when the, what the gospel means, in order to receive the good news of, of Jesus' touch and, and, and transformation of our lives, what, what it requires, it's, it's not a works thing, but what it requires is that we give all that we are over to, to God, to Jesus. It's, it's not that we just give him the best parts. It's not that we give him the parts that we can live without. It's that we give him all that we are. So therefore, I don't care who we are. I don't care what we think our identity is. I don't think, I care what, what, what our, our you know, attractions or whatever else are. For all of us, that's the door, is we give all that we are to Jesus Christ. All of it goes across the table, across the board. So no group, no community, no person is being asked to sacrifice more than anyone else to follow Jesus, okay? Just to put that in clarity. On the other hand, that same Jesus is the one who said, if you're burdened and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. And that rest isn't just like, phew, I'm glad that's over. I wonder when the next one's going to hit. That rest is living in a way that you're living along the grain of life. It's freedom to live out the design and purpose for which you and I are, 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 are put on this earth. It, it, and, that, and that offer is for everybody who's burdened. So that's important to clarify. And then there's one more thing I need to clarify. We hear a lot about the letters LGBT today uh, in our time, and we'll, hear, we'll talk about them today. But in order to get through what we need to get through, I need to say we're not going to deal a whole lot with the T. Because there's a whole set of different issues besides the LG and the B for the T. And, and, and uh, people in the culture are actually starting to recognize this. Gay activists are starting to push back on the T. Uh, traditional feminists are starting to uh, push back on the T. So <clears throat> the reality is, is there's a whole set of other things that, that need to be said that can't be, so I can't say it all. But here's what I will say. The gospel applies to every single letter and even the people that don't have a letter. It applies to everybody. And so all the things we say about the gospel and the good news, what Jesus teaches also applies to anyone who has those kinds of feelings also, Okay. Just want to clarify, because as much as possible, past the shouting, past the screaming that's going on in our culture, if we could just possibly kind of start off and saying, you know, as far as Jesus is concerned, we're, we're all in the same place. He treats us all the same. So we're all set that way. And to clarify that even further, I want to just show you something that I ran across when I was studying for this. Actually, I think Sharon showed me this. Uh, it's a, a podcast from a guy named uh, Sam Alberry. And Sam Alberry is a pastor who teaches, he lives in the UK and teaches a lot there, but he comes over to the US and teaches a lot. He works for RZIM Ministry, which is Ravi Zacharias International Ministry. Uh, but at this particular podcast, he was teaching the leaders of the Gospel Coalition. If you've been on gospelcoalition.com, you've seen uh, their materials, very helpful for biblical Christians, some of the material in there. Uh, but this was a conference last year that he spoke at, and his subject that he was given, and, and that the, the uh, name of his talk was Seven Ways to Navigate a Sexually Shifting Culture. Very apropos. Here's the interesting little factoid Sam Alberry, by his own admission, 
uh, discovered when he was in high school that he is same-sex attracted. But he is, God has used him in so, much, so many powerful, powerful ways. Of course, he's celibate and he's single and all that kind of stuff. Yes, we'll get to that. But he is um, a very wise man in these matters. So I want to show you something that he does in that podcast, in that talk, because it sort of clarifies something that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And, the, and, and what he's talking about is in the last 10 to 15 years, people's intuitions that they use to decide their morality, the, the moral intuitions or the taste buds, if you will, have changed. It's almost like nobody remembers what it was like before these things changed. These four areas changed. And what, what's changed is the way people think about these four areas. And, and uh, it, it's almost like you can't remember what it was like before the iPhone came on the scene, right? right? It's like nobody, really, that, that happened, you know? <clears throat> I thought Jesus had an iPhone. I mean, that, you know, it's kind of that kind of thing. And, and it, it just completely washed, and it's happened so fast, everybody's head is spinning. And, and here's what's changed over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. First of all, our moral intuitions have changed. And this we talked about two weeks ago uh, because we talked about uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. But Albert boils it down much more clear and succinctly, I think. He says there are three questions that people go to or sort of taste buds that they run all their decisions through. Here it is. Is it something <clears throat> harmful or not? Does it seem freeing or oppressive? And does it seem fair or discriminatory? And that starts to put the lights on in terms of what we're seeing and the wash that we're in in the culture right now, doesn't it? For one thing, from a Christian worldview, depending on where you land on those, you know, those dichotomies, <laughs> we're in the bullseye just about every, every one of them just for holding the belief or the worldview that the Bible teaches or that Jesus teaches. But secondly, it helps us understand if these are in fact um, the, the morality questions that are self-evident to everybody now, and these are different than they were 10 or 15 years ago, if these are, if these are uh, the, the questions that everybody kind of operates on, not by reason, but by their intuition, by their gut, by their feeling, then it totally makes sense that people in most of our culture, uh, for example, with same-sex marriage, how quickly the attitude changes toward that. I mean, politicians one year were saying, no way, and next year they said, oh, absolutely, how can we stop? And what changed was, you know, people looking at, you know, how, how can it be fair to not let that nice couple down the street get married? I mean, how does that harm me? You know, how, how come one kind of affection is elevated and celebrated and the other one is not? You know, and, and, and isn't that sort of oppressive and so forth and so on? And you begin to, to understand and you begin to make, make sense out of that, right? That, that's the moral intuitions. But there's another thing that's changed, and that is our view of min minorities. Have you noticed that there's a multiplicity of minorities? Because the reality is, is you can... You can cut that apple down to the smallest slice because there's always a minority somewhere, right? I mean, in, in the old days, oftentimes we, we talked about ethnic minorities because there was a lot of wrong that was done there that we needed to address. And, and same with women. We can, that was considered a minority for a while. Although I think there's more men, women in the United States than men, but it's not just a numbers thing. It's, you know, whether or not they've been oppressed and so forth. Uh, but now it's sliced up, and today we're specifically thinking about sexual minorities. And the reality is, is that the reason that has shifted is because there's some truth to the regrets that we have for the discrimination and the, the harm and the, the, the bullying that has been done to people who are same-sex attracted, right? 
And so we say, we kind of gone to the other extreme now and say, well, then people, if you have a minority uh, behind your name, if, if, that, if, you're, if you can identify as that, then your voice counts more. For example, uh, the voice of a, a lesbian woman, there's two minorities there, counts way more than a middle-aged white man. So if you want to go home right now, that, there you go. I mean, it counts way, way more, right? I mean, and part of that is you can see the justification for that because it's like, well, yeah, but we've got all these regrets that we've got to address, so give them a shot here. Let them be, you know, on the top for a while. And uh, if you add multiple minorities to that, then it's even more. Like if it's, if it's an ethnic lesbian woman, that's three minority voices. So it just gets more and more powerful, you see. that We've kind of changed our view, and those are the reasons why we've changed it. And, and when I say our, I mean our cultural view. Uh, thir- for, thirdly, our view of sex and marriage has changed. Now, this has been a long time coming. It started at least 60 years ago in the sexual revolution back in the 60s, where the older brothers and sisters of my generation, it wasn't me, I was in the third grade when this started. Okay. Just to be clear. But it, it started where there's, with the moral... Uh, or the, the sexual revolution back there, but now we're seeing the end game of it. And here's the thing, forget marriage. I mean, that's kind of pushed off the table, you know, traditional marriage, let's just, just blow that apart. There are people who are saying that. But sex now is viewed <clears throat> as uh, not just, not something to bring intimacy in marriage, but it's been reduced down to just, you know, uh, a, a form of recreation. It's been reduced down to a tool See, like we said, when you separate the body from the soul, or the body down here, the soul up here, and the body's worth less than like the spirit and the soul and so forth, it only, you know, it's, it's a very small step to say, well, your body's just a piece of meat anyway. You know, your body's just a tool to use for your entertainment. Therefore, when you have relationships and you hook up, you're in the hookup culture or whatever, you can, you can stop that relationship and stop over, they're not even relationships really, they're just buddies being buddies. Have you heard the phrase, it's only sex? I mean, that happens all the time now. And that's, that's shifted in the last 10 to 15 years in a big way. But the largest thing, the, mo- the most significant thing for our purposes today that has shifted is our view of anthropology. That is what it means to be a human being. What is a people anyway? What is a person anyway? It's completely shifted. And here's how it's shifted. And it's a very scary thing when you think about it. What we're saying now is that in order to find out who you are as a person, since you've got the split, you need to dig around, not in, you know, your, your, your biology, but you need to dig around in your feelings, in your intuitions, in, in the urges and impulses that you have. And nobody can do that for you, least of all God, because he's out of the picture now. You, you, you dig around and you get to decide who you are. And so you see, identity becomes sort of a free-floating thing, right? And you can be, you, it's cultural chaos, <laughs> is what happens. That's why people do crazy things, like the woman who was the head of the chapter of the NAACP somewhere in the country, can't remember her name, can't remember her, or can't remember where, can't remember her name, uh, and don't know what's really happened to her, but she claimed to be African-American, and her parents came out and go, wait, what about? She's not African-American at all. She didn't have anything in her, 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 you know, in, in her, in her uh, ancestry there. Not that it would be bad, it's just not there. And, and, and she said, well, I identify as African-American, so I should be the head of this chapter. Well, she wasn't for very long, because it really harms that whatever minority, so-called, that you're sticking up for, right? In that case, it harms true African-Americans for that to happen. So, so the reality is, is that 
that, um, you know, that has completely changed. What we've gone from is, we talked about this two weeks ago, where we talked about the autonomous choice culture, that it's my choice. Well, that's morphed into something even more destructive in many ways to the human soul. And that is identity morality. It's like identity politics. It's just by identity. However I identify myself, you need to go along with it. And if you don't go along with it, then, you know, you've got some bigot problems or, uh, you know, you, you have to let me in the doors that I want to walk into because just because of that, even if there's conflicting identities. And, and that's what we're starting to see is, is, a, is a result of conflicting identities. And here's what happens when we start to take these four things that have shifted and apply them to Christianity or, or see what's happening in Christianity specifically in how people view the Bible. You know, in the old days, they used to say, oh, the Bible's got nothing to do with me. At the old days being like 10 years ago. Uh, the, the, the Bible's so old-fashioned, it just has nothing to do. That's not really the postmodern line anymore with regard to the Bible. The postmodern line, at least with regard to human sexuality, is, is that Jesus never talked about it. That the Bible doesn't have much to say about uh, any kind of sexuality. And so, therefore, it can't be important to the Bible. That's the new one. I don't know if you've heard that one. Even some uh, Christians are starting to promote the idea that Jesus didn't teach it. Well, here's the problem. Just like everything else, there's a little bit of truth mixed in with a lot of error on that. The truth is, the Bible doesn't have that many passages on human sexuality, specifically uh, uh, LGBT matters or same-sex attraction matters, but it does have some. And what's not true to the point of being disingenuous to talk about it is that to say that Jesus doesn't ever talk about it, because he does. And he teaches specifically and clearly about it. And so what I'm going to do today, I'm sort of pulling back from all the issues, and let's just talk about what does Jesus specifically have to say about uh, the, the human sexuality uh, matters that, that are raging today around us. What are we supposed to make of it, and how does he tell us to live in the midst of a culture that is, is, is doing that and is, is uh, you know, in, in some ways feels like it's kind of spinning itself to p- apart so I encourage you to turn then, first of all, we're going to, if you're, if you're following in your Bible, by the way, today, it's going to be like a Bible drill. You're going to be going around, but I'm, I'd love to have you do it. But if you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 7. As Jesus is a very interesting thing, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. So first of all, Jesus takes their face in their hand, like my, my mom used to do. She grabbed my face, doing, listen to me. This is really important. So that's what, that's what he's saying to the crowd, essentially. And he says, it's not what, what goes into you, it's what comes out of you. And it says, uh, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So that was an issue But apparently that wasn't the main thing that Jesus was going for. Look at this. He went on, or um, sorry, um, I already, I skipped down to verse 19. After he had, verse 17, after he, he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? Ouch. He asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their, their heart uh, but into their stomach and then out of their body. So he's saying foods are clean, but that's not all he's saying because he went on. 
What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that the evil thoughts come. So here's where the evil comes, and he's going to list off some evils. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, decent, uh, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from the inside and defile a person. So first, right off the bat, we got to look at that list and pull out uh, this list of evils. Pull out two words because they define what Jesus thinks about sexuality, because there's two words that refer to sexuality here. The first one is sexual immorality. That's the Greek word porneia, which we get the word pornography from that word, okay? We talked about that last week. But what porneia was, was sort of a catch-all, a catch-bag, or, or an umbrella word for all sexual sins, and all uh, uh, deviation uh, from, from God's design. You know, it can be premarital sex. It can be, uh, you know, sex with someone else uh, while you're married. It can be homosexuality, to use that word. It can be all the whole myriad and spectrum of possible uh, perversions that would be perverting God's original design thrown into that word. So here's the point. We can't say that Jesus didn't ever talk about it. Because this isn't the only place he talks about it. It's clear he talks about it. And this word is used. We'll see that later. But the second word is adultery. That's the Greek word moikia. And moikia was was used of someone who is married or is not, who either is not married and having sex with someone who's not their their spouse uh, and or someone who is married and having sex with someone who is not their spouse. So it links both ways. In fact, it's used in the Old Testament, in the, tran- in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of Jesus' time. God uses that word to describe why, why he's divorcing Israel, adultery, moikia, because they had followed idols and worshipped other small g gods. So there's an idolatry element to it which means that whenever you place anything in the center of your life, including sex, when your sexual urges or feelings or sex itself is placed as the center of your life, that is idolatry. And that's why Jesus is kind of up in arms about this. That's why Jesus is concerned about this. Because he addresses what we started with in in the beginning of this series, this thing called reductionism. He is against anything that tears people down. And he's saying that this will tear us down, not just as a society, but individual people are getting chewed up in the wheels of how we deal with sexuality. That's what he's concerned with. It's the reductionism. In fact, let's just take one group of people who are being ground up, and I I fear that we, we at least need to say this. And I'm talking about young people. You know, either grade school or on, or kids, and even younger than that now. And I'm not just talking about kids who are, uh, you know, straight. I'm talking about kids also who, are same, who, who grow into high school, let's say, and discover they've got same-sex attractions. They're getting chewed up. You know, for example, in terms of straight kids, I refuse to use the letter Q. Well, I mean, I use it, but not when I'm talking about LGBT. You know why? Do you know what it means? It doesn't mean what you think it means, maybe. In Europe and in Australia, places like that, they put an I in there instead. It means inquisitive. 
Q means questioning. And kids of all stripes are being pushed and pushed and pushed to experiment and question their sexuality. That has, that's, that's new, folks. I, I, in fact, I've, I've heard some things. I, I'm kind of old-fashioned, and maybe you've learned this a long time ago, especially if you've got teenagers in high school or something. Then in some high schools, uh, kids are reporting that they're getting so much pressure that it's like, you're a bigot if you don't at least try it. That kind of junk. In Washington State, preschoolers and kindergartners are being told they don't have to choose their gender yet. They can, they can wait to seven, eight. Then you can choose it later or when you're 12, or whatever, you start feeling like what you feel like. You see, isn't that crazy? I, I don't, this is just anecdotal. I have no idea whether this actually happened, but I'm hearing like little boys and little girls are going, but my dad calls me a boy. My mom calls me a girl. And last time I checked, I was, you know I mean? That kind of thing. And, and it's almost like the, the, the children will lead them. I mean, it's, it's just an illustration of how crazy our society has gone when it's unhitched itself from God's design. But that's not the worst of it. The worst of it, I think, is what's happening with same-sex attracted students. Because they are experiencing so much pressure in their schools and other places that if you don't embrace this, you had a feeling once, aha, if you don't embrace that, you're a bigot. You better follow that. You know, and it's becoming the trendy thing, right? You know how trendy things happen when you're a young person. Happened for us too, all over the place. But, but here's the thing that really, to take it even further in terms of this reductionism getting chewed up in the wheels of a culture, our Christian kids are getting hit with this. And I can say I'm very proud, or, or that's not the right word, I'm thankful for the leadership of our youth group because I know, I don't have recent information on this, but I do have information over the last five years that there are students who have, who have come out and said, you know, I'm, I'm attracted this way. And, and our group, our leaders have, and, our, and our kids have surrounded them and loved them. And said, so you know, and not, not agreeing with them, that's not the same thing. That's what we're being told. It's, if you don't agree with me, you don't love me. That's just, not, that's just a trope that's ridiculous. But they're surrounded and said, well, we're going to be family with you. We're going to walk with you. And that's the way the church ought to act. Because here's the thing. There are so many kids who've experienced those kind of feelings. You know, everybody experiences feelings this way and that way and so forth. Feelings are, are sort of transient sometimes, right? And, and, and so they experience these feelings. What are they supposed to do with them? And they pray and pray, God, take it away, take it away, take it away. And God doesn't take it away. The church has got to be the church. We've got to step up and be that where we surround people and help them and, and nurture them and care for them, to go against this reductionism and the forces that are pulling people apart. You see, what Jesus does in that last line when he says, all these evils uh, come from inside and defile a person, he's separating our urges, uh, not from our body, but from our identity. He's saying, that's not who you really are. You, you're digging around and they're trying to find your urges and your, your, your attractions. That's not who you are. You're, you're something else. He'll get to that a little later. You're defined by God. Who you are is, is not that. And it's not behavior either. We don't try to smash the behavior in order to fix what's inside. That's wrong too. And there's some quote-unquote ministries that are doing that. And that's not right. But he's saying, no, it's, it's the transformation of God from the inside out that changes you. That's your identity. The person that God made you to be is your identity. Doesn't mean your feelings change all that much. We'll get to that in a little later. But you see, 
you, what you see here is, is kind of the confusion of the disciples in the big picture. Did you notice how Jesus is kind of blunt with them when they ask him about the parables? It's like, are you so dull? It's like, what, dull? I mean, before we go too far, I have to admit, I would be in the dumb disciple crowd right here, right? I mean, the first time I read verses 14 to 16, I thought, I didn't even know that was a parable. I mean, just a couple of sentences, some teaching, right? These guys at least know it's a parable, And Jesus says, are you so dull? Maybe you've noticed in the Gospels, you know, when when Jesus is dealing with, you know, uh, things like everyday things like, you know, food and what are you going to do about money and how do you love other people and stuff. Disciples got it. They write it down and so forth. It's when he gets to the cosmic big picture items that they go, huh? Right? And this is one of those times because that's what we do. What? What? And and he's addressing a confusion that actually is raging uh, in our world today. What Jesus is looking on the horizon and he's seeing is that somehow the Roman Empire is dabbling with all kinds of moral differentiations, all kinds of moral deviances, okay? And he sees something on the horizon that he wants to alert his followers to. And it's this, when a moral structure is destroyed or reduced, there's no way to keep that destruction isolated to one part of society, Every part will be shattered, regardless of your attractions, regardless of your belief system, regardless of what community you're in. Ultimately, it all starts to break apart. Because that's the reality that Jesus sees and Jesus is teaching. And that's, that is all a part of his teaching. In fact, let's look at another part of his teaching from Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew 19, beginning at verse 9, Jesus follows this through even further. He's just been teaching about divorce and marriage. And, and he said, you know, even though divorce is legal in legal terms, I get that. And, and Moses made a legal option for it because of certain reasons. Uh, uh, that doesn't mean it's a part of God's moral code, okay? So he's clarified that. This freaks out the disciples. And here's what happens. In verse 9, it says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman uh, commits adultery. 10, the disciples said to him, is this the situation between a husband and wife? It is better not to marry. (laughs) I guess that's not funny. Verse 11, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. So which word is that? Well, it's the word that maybe it's better that I not marry. That's what he's talking about, because look what he says. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs that have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. In other words, there is a gift from God called celibate singleness. That is a possibility. I mean, you got your two words again here. You got sexual immorality, porneia, and you got adultery, uh, moikia. Uh, and Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Well, you know, boys, you know, in terms of your fear about getting married, there is another option, not for you guys who are married, like Peter was already married, but there is an option of being um, what he calls a eunuch. Now, the reason he uses that phraseology is because in the Hebrew language, and therefore it's variant of Aramaic, which Jesus spoke, there wasn't a word for celibacy. There wasn't a word for singleness, uh, 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 celibacy and singleness. 
So he pulls out this, this word, uh, eunuch, which means someone who uh, has been either made eunuch physically by, you know, like when they, it was an ugly thing in those days where they would make eunuchs uh, of men when they were captured in battle. Uh, and then maybe they'd put them in the king's court because in the king's court, you know, the, he could, uh, I mean, a eunuch maybe could take care of the queen and, you know, the king wouldn't be worried about that. Uh, it's other, other people who are born that way, Jesus says. But then there are people who choose that, who be, are given this certain gift from God to flourish and be alive and full of his grace as a single celibate person. What he's saying is, is your, your urges, your desires, your attractions, they do not hold you. They are they are there, and God created your desires, and there's much about your desires that's really, really good. But sin has touched even that. It's touched everything. And those desires, those urges, those attractions, they are not God. God is God. You do not have to submit to those. That's not, and, and what, he, what he is saying is, is that that, he's separating again the, the, um, the urges and, and, and our impulses from our identity. He's saying God is still in control of this. God created desires. He knows all about that. You see, what Jesus is going up against here is he's saying, you know, that trope that we hear today that says, uh, I can't help it. God made me this way. This is the way it is, so forth and so on. I can't, I have to follow my feelings. It would be wrong not to follow my feelings and so forth. Heard that one? Well, that's actually a lie, and it's from a very dark place. From Satan. You heard of him? Here's what Satan's lie is. It's going across the board in our culture today. It's wrong, or immoral is another way to say that. It's wrong not to follow every desire and urge you have. And check it out. Man, is that ever the Garden of Eden or what? And that's the lie. And here's the thing, Jesus' teaching, and more and more and more science is proving. I love it when, you know, Jesus teaches and science proves. It's actually Jesus proves and teaches too. But, it, but, but science more and more is, is indicating, including psychiatry and psychology, starting to question some of this stuff like you have to follow your urges, have to follow so forth and so on. For example, let me give you one example of it to say that it's just in my DNA and I'm just stuck with it. Uh, there's a, there's a uh, geneticist in America who's a leading geneticist really because he, he oversaw the genome mapping project called the Genome Project. This is where we're, that's why people are working on genes today, why we make so much uh, uh, you know, advances in gene therapy uh, in, in this day and age. His name is Dr. Francis Collins, and it's not to be confused with Francis Crick, whom we quoted a couple weeks ago, who's an atheist scientist. Francis Collins is a Christian. He became a Christian when he was working on the Genome Project. And, and, and Collins has said this about our DNA and this idea that it's just, we can't help it. Sexual orientation is genetically influenced but not hardwired by DNA. Whatever genes are involved represent predispositions or influencing, not predeterminations. You are not stuck in that, regardless of what your inclinations are, regardless of, of, of what your, your feelings are. And by the way, just to show what I mean, all these ideas that I'm born this way, this must be God, I've got to follow this feeling, ooh, 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 all that stuff, 
I've heard that exact same phraseology and those exact same words from heterosexual men who are having affairs and about to blow up their marriages. Every single one. I can't help it. You know, I, I, God must have been in this because he brought her into my life and suddenly I discovered she's my soulmate. I have to follow this and it'll be okay. I'll take care of the kids. When I have them on the weekend, I'll, I'll make up for when I don't see them on the weekends. It'll be okay. I mean, yada, 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 yada. From heterosexual men committing heterosexual sin. So it's not just to be put on the shoulders of LGBT people or same-sex attracted people. What this is saying is, is that, you know, uh, let's be careful about, you know, thinking that somehow it's just these people out there that are screwing up society. This would never be happening if a whole society hadn't been involved in supporting that. That's the reality. And it's partly to do with that split between body and soul. It all started there and so forth and so on and on and on and on. In fact, I think Paul, the Apostle Paul, had these scriptures that we just looked at from Jesus. He had these teachings in his mind when he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. Because apparently people in Corinth, Christians in Corinth, were practicing sexual immorality in some ways. One of the ways was temple uh, prostitution being involved there, but all kinds of ways. Because look what what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 12. Look what he says uh, about uh, our bodies. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say. Heard that? But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, Paul says. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. In other words, he'll destroy the body, and it's like food. It's not a big deal. It's just a piece of protoplasm. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take a member of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her body For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality, porneia. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your body are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And I think it should just add a translation there that says, any questions? I mean, because he just pedal to the metal right there. Look how many times he uses the word body. Eight times. So here's the question that Paul's trying to get at. Whose body is it anyway? And the answer is, it's not yours and it's not mine. The body is his. It's the Lord's. All of it. All of who you are, all of who I am are, are, um, are his. And, and, it's, and, and, and can we just say this real clearly too? I don't want to keep making uh, disclaimers. 
but I don't think this is a disclaimer. When he talks about taking care of your body because your body is the Lord's, he's not just talking about illicit sex, although you know he's talking about it when he talks about sexual immorality. But he's talking about taking care of your body because it's the Lord's. Going to the gym tomorrow. Okay, so that's the reality. There are other ways besides that to, to harm or reduce, destroy your body. But I want to give some good news here. I skipped over it purposely because I wanted you to see this at the end. One verse, one sentence before Paul says what he just said. In verse 11, he says this. And that is what some of you were. You were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You're not beholden and stuck with your urges and your attractions, regardless of what they are. You don't have to follow them for the sake of your identity. That's a lie. And Jesus can transform that. He can, he can help you in the midst of that. You can be washed and waiting for graduate, uh, gratification later. They used to call that uh, delayed gratification, discipline. You justified, sanctified. That's New Testament speak for you can be free. You don't have to be locked into that. And please, please, please understand what I'm saying here. What, 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 Jesus, or what, what Paul is saying here is that you, you need to avoid you know, becoming a sticky note. This is Sam Alberry's uh, illustration too. He says, you know, sticky notes are great. You, you write notes yourself. I put them all the time on my doorpost. Don't forget the ice cream in the refrigerator. That kind of thing. And, and, and there it is, and I still forget it. But they're helpful sometimes. But the more I take that up and stick that somewhere else, the less sticky it becomes. And pretty soon it's just functional. It's not really working anymore. And that's what happens when we use our sexuality that way. It becomes functional. You become more and more lonely. You wonder why you're not, you know, experiencing greater pleasure and joy in life, and you just get alienated. And that's what, that's the reductionism, that's the destruction that Paul and Jesus specifically are trying to save us from. In fact, that's where Jesus is going by reminding us who we really are. Back in chapter 19 of Matthew, in the first uh, part of what he's teaching them about marriage and life, look what he says beginning at verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. You know what united means, right? And to the two will become one flesh. So that th they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Please understand what he's saying. He's talking about, he's affirming the cr creative arc over scripture and over the whole course of history. The creative arc is what the creator started in Genesis chapter 1. We looked at it a couple weeks ago, that God created us in his own image, Genesis 1.27. And that image, the image of God of all human beings, every single person, regardless of your attractions, regardless of your urges, regardless of what's happened in your life, created in the image of God. Yes, that image has been marred, but still the value's there. Created in the image of God all the way to the end of time. And Jesus is saying, that's what you've got to accept. That's what you've got to understand if you're going to have a flourishing life. He's not saying you have to be married to have a flourishing life. He's saying you need to accept the creative arc of how God set human beings in motion in the beginning. 
and what he made us for, or who he made us for, which is himself. So please understand me here. I am not saying, he is not saying, that somehow if you just come to Jesus, all your, your uh, attractions go away. That somehow gay people have their, their feelings changed. That's not what he's saying. It does happen. It happens far more, at least they're moderated in many ways for far, far more people than is given press. And I'm also not saying that somehow we should try to bash that into people to start with the behavior side, you know, take them away and put them under brainwashing. That's not right. That's, that's wrong. What, what, he is saying, what he's not saying is that somehow your feelings go away, but that your value and your sense of self-worth, you finally figure out where it comes from when you do that. What he's also not saying is people who, you know, like a gay person who begins to follow Jesus, suddenly their feelings change and they get married to somebody of the opposite sex. Although that marriage business does happen far, 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 far more than is ever reported in the media. They don't dare report that, right? But their feelings haven't changed. They're still attracted to the same sex in many cases. But suddenly they see God doing something in their hearts when they realize that that's not their identity and they fall in love with some of the opposite gender and raise families. I can think of five people at least all, right now who on varying degrees are speaking up about it. Just five people that, that I've come across. And that's not... And that's, you know, it's happening far more, and, and there's lots of people out there that are experiencing that sort of thing, and they just want to want to live life. They don't want to make that the main thing and the main thing, right? But So we're not saying the feelings change, but what we're saying is, is that the only way to human flourishing is to have that perspective and the attitude to receive the worldview, the view of who you are from God himself that he put there in the first place, that you were made in his image, and you were loved in that image regardless of what your feelings and your attractions are. And he's just saying, simply follow me, and I'll show you that that's true. So when it comes to Jesus and the teaching on human sexuality, here's what he says. This is a summary, three points. Sex outside of marriage is sin. Porneia moikia. Marriage between, is between one man and one woman. That's the creative arc. That's how God started it, and it's still intact. Thirdly, the only other option besides marriage, and not just an other, uh, shoot, an option, it's a valuable option and a calling, and Jesus calls it a gift if you can accept it. Only other option for flourishing life is celibacy. That is a choice. That is a real choice because my identity is not tied to my feelings and my emotions and my urges. So here's, here's the thing. Here's partly how I want to end this. I'm asked all the time from people who say, well, what do I say to people who are saying, you know, somebody comes out in my family or, you know, one of my kids' friends or, or you know, someone that I know or so. What, what do I say when I hear, you know, if you don't really accept this, then you're, you're you know, you're, you're not right. You're wrong. It's not fair. It's not, you know, even to the point of, you know, you're, don't be bigoted and that kind of thing. What, what do I say? Now, here's what you can say. If that's true, this is what you can say. This is Jesus that's saying this stuff now. You can say this. You're not asking me to change or bend a few rules. You're asking me to stop following Jesus. How's that for unfair? I don't think you need to add that last part. But that's what they're asking. That's what you're being asked to do. Because Jesus has already made it clear what his following is. So what is it that we can do 
to get on the positive side of this, to live flourishing lives and to invite people and to rescue some people maybe with the good news. We don't do that. The Holy Spirit of God does that. But how about, what can we do to live? Because remember, every person you lay eyes on, Jesus came to the world to die for them and to raise again from the dead for them. Every person you lay eyes on this week or forever, that's true. And that one who came that God sent, we are told, a bruised reed he will not break. Matthew 12 and our prophet Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not blow out. That's how gentle he is. So how can we Christians move beyond the negative message and the shame and the guilt of communicate a holistic, uh, you know, humane view of sexuality? Where can we go with this? Regardless of what a person's attracted, same-sex attraction and straight. Here's what you need to remember and what we need to start with. I mean, these are just some starting ideas. Remember, Jesus treats everybody the same. We started with that. He treats everybody the same with the gospel. The good news is for all. Celebrate singleness too. I think the church could use some work on that. The church hold. Sam Alberry apparently just came out with a book on singleness. It's supposed to be very good. I haven't read it, so I can't recommend it, but I'll bet you it's good. Consider that lives are at stake. This isn't about joining a club or a community or some kind of uh, ideology. Lives are at stake. As we've already seen, people get chewed up in this. And finally, embrace and communicate the worldview that everyone's identity is much deeper than fleeting feelings. Those feelings are fluid and they change all the time. Not the deepest, and I'm not saying they all go away, but it's just not a safe place to base your identity on those feelings and urges. So we can be supporters and we need to champion what God is for, not just what we're against. God is for sex. He invented it. God is for marriage. And what we've learned from Jesus is he's for celibate singleness too. And here's the other fact of the matter. God is for gay LGBT people. He's for them. Because all the things, if you collected all the things that are said in the Bible with regard to these matters, it's only one-tenth or maybe even less of what God wants to say to them about how he loves them and how the gospel is for them. We can affirm that. That God is for his creation and for his people and rescuing as many as he can. So I'm going to call the band out here and to kind of bring all these things together, I'm going to read you a quote from Sam Albury's book, Is God Anti-Gay? And by the way, the answer to that question is no. (laughs) And it's this way. Here's what God is anti. God is against uh, that guy or that lady in the core of all of us that wants to kind of shake their fist at God and do our own thing and just reject him altogether and leave me alone. That's what he's against. And part of the reason he's against, besides the fact that that's sin, he's against that because he knows the destruction that that sin can bring into our lives. But Albury winds up the end of this, uh, this book with these paragraphs that I think just kind of brings it all together, and I want to leave you with it. Here it is. And so it is a huge comfort to reflect on these words of Jesus. I can test him on it and know that he will always prove it, the words that we've already been reading about. Life is far, far better when he is at the center and far, far worse when anyone or anything else is. This is ultimately the promise of the gospel. 
The great gift Jesus gives us is himself. He is not the means to some other end. It is not that the bread of life is something else and that Jesus just happens to be the one who dispenses it. He himself is the bread. It is Jesus who satisfies our deepest emotional and spiritual needs. He is the prize for all of us, irrespective of our issues complexities, and complexities. Anyone who comes to him will find fullness of life. The invitation is there for everyone. And so precious is the gift that God cannot be truly said to be anti-anyone to whom this wonderful gift is offered. And there are thousands, hundreds that you'll encounter this week, and thousands of people all around us and millions of people all around us who are hungering. They may not know yet, but they are hungering to hear that. That that's the kind of God there is and the kind of God who created them and can make sense of all the confusions that they're going through right now. So let me pray. And uh, you can pray with me or if you need to talk to God about some things, just maybe there's a person that's come to your mind or maybe it's yourself and you just need to lift it up to God and say, God, I got to give you this. I need you now to show me where I need to go and how I need to treat this person or think about myself. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us enough to send your Son. Enough doesn't even seem the right word. But you loved us so much to send your Son to die for us and is risen from the dead to beat back the power of sin and death and to put, make it possible for you to be put at the center of who we are again so that life can go better, so that we can be your friend, and we can have peace with you instead of constantly knocking our head against the walls that are around us. And I pray that every single person in our church, every single person here, might sense and feel that freedom and the hope of being washed, sanctified, and justified, as Paul says. And may we be people who live that way. And people with whom there's a calm and a strange sense of, you know, maybe I can talk to that person about this. Because that only way for that to happen in such a raucous time is for your spirit to give us that heart. So we pray for that. We ask for that. We thank you that you're here. We thank you that you've taught us what you've taught us, Jesus. We love you. You are such an awesome companion. You are such an awesome friend. And more than that, you are the Lord who solves all of this and anything else that we find ourselves struggling with. We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us to acknowledge that you are our Lord and Savior of our entire lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.